Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather together with your uh, saints to, to worship you, to encourage one another, to fellowship around the means of grace, to exhort and comfort one another, and together open up the scriptures so that our hearts and minds could be renewed and that we could be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus. We thank you for the ones that listen around the world. We pray for their blessing and spiritual benefit. And we ask you to be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning we begin in 2 Corinthians 12, beginning with verse 13. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 13. He says this. Remember in this chapter, if you weren't here the last few weeks that we've been in here, Paul's defending himself against his critics who have influenced the Corinthian church. His critics, we talked about, are likely from Jerusalem. They claim to be uh, super apostles. At least that's what Paul calls them, uh, hyper apostles, super apostles. They claim to have superior speech, superior wisdom, superior signs, superior visions. And so the problem is they have a false gospel. Their message, according to Paul, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4, entails another gospel, another Jesus, and a different spirit. So it's really definitively not from God, not from God. So verse 13 says this, For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Then ironically, he says, forgive me this wrong. One of the complicating factors in interpreting 2 Corinthians, or actually 1st and 2 Corinthians, is that a lot of what's being discussed is behind the scenes. Okay, Paul has written letters that we don't have. Some of the issues you have to read between the lines. Well, what were these false prophets actually teaching? What, were, what was being said? What are the accusations? The Corinthians know these things. Paul knows these things, but we don't. So we have to fill in the blanks. And I've been doing this for several years as we go through Second Corinthians, filling in the blanks by hints that we have from the text about what was being said. Now, here's a hint we have right here. We believe that there's a sore spot and that the false apostles who are making money off the Corinthians are suggesting in some way the fact that Paul hasn't asked for money from them shows that he doesn't have a valid message. Paul doesn't have anything that would be worth anybody paying for, or something like that. And then there's another accusation we're going to see, and that is then they say when Paul's taking up his collection for the four saints in Jerusalem, that actually Paul is going to plunder the offering, and he's getting rich off of it behind the scenes. And that's another accusation. So they're dreaming up any kind of accusation that you can imagine to try to degrade Paul's gospel in the eyes of the Corinthian church. They are therefore not wanting to listen to Paul, 
And Paul has to defend himself because it's just not his reputation that's at stake. That would be something that, well, if somebody wants to believe lies about you, what can you do about it? But the problem is if they believe the lies about Paul, they'll also believe the lies about the gospel. And then they're going to come to, they're going to, come to very serious spiritual harm. So he has to defend himself because the gospel itself is at stake because these people have a different message. They were elitist. In verse 11, as we talked about last time, they're hyper, hyper apostles. And um, very beyond is the word in the Greek. And so they're making these grandiose claims. Now, just to make an application to this, nothing's really changed. It's interesting how whatever happened 2,000 years ago is still going on. Right? We still have hyper-apostles. We still have hyper-apostles who are making grandiose claims. We still have hyper-apostles who are teaching false messages. We still have hyper-apostles who are getting rich off of the flock. And people will give more money often to hear a false message. In fact, the more false the message is, the more it costs you to hear it. And what was the deal? I remember one time I had an email exchange with Janice a few years ago because her conference was coming up and there was some false, I don't know what they were, whether they were prophets or apostles or prosperity. It was some sort of a false message. And they were charging like $100 a piece to come and hear them. And so I told Jan, Jan's conference, of course, is free. And I said, well, if you want the gospel, it's free. If you want heresy, you've got to pay for it. <laughs> That's kind of how it goes. And you've got to pay big for it. It's not cheap. I was digging around. My, my, I, had a, I had a computer meltdown. For my work computer, this is the first time a virus ever knocked me out. And uh, I was typing away, doing my emails when I first get there, and a little box comes up that says, your computer will shut down in 28, 27, 26. Boom, gone. Just, that's it. I'm dead. I'm out of, I'm out of business. And, but fortunately, we had made a clone of the system drive on, May, on March 10th. So Jessica came over and worked on my computer all day, and by 4 in the afternoon I was back up having only lost the emails from March 10th to today. So if anybody emailed me something really important between March 10th and April 24th, I have no clue. Hopefully I responded to everything that I needed to. But in the course of trying to retrieve my emails, I, had, I found out that I had too big of a file because I've been saving them since 2003. It, okay, and there's a limit. This PST file that you, that that has all of your data can, cannot be over two gig, or uh, Outlook won't process it. Well, mine was 2.1 gigs, so I couldn't get my emails back. So I was going through the ones I did have and pulling stuff out of there, and I went back a bunch of years and I found an email from somebody about Scientology, and. It, was, it just reminded me of this thing of how expensive heresy is. And this lady was explaining Scientology, and we're going to actually have Jay Howard here 
on May 17th, he's going to do a lecture about Scientology. And uh, that's very, uh, the reason I'm interested in it is because it's almost identical to Theophostic ministry. And some have the theory that Theophostics was actually just taking Scientology and putting a Christian veneer on it. I don't know if that's provable. But anyhow, she was telling me about having been in Scientology, and she says it's interesting. Uh, your, your, the goal is to get clear, okay? And so you have these auditors and this sort of a lie detector thing that, you know, when you have a... A, a hot memory, this thing goes, oh, there it is. That's the one that's getting you. And then uh, so on. She says, so here's the thing that's kind of odd, though. If you're really poor, you usually get clear pretty quickly. <laughs> she says, but if you're rich, you never get clear. They just keep you coming back because <laughs> they, they keep the money coming in. So it's always some money angle or usually when it comes to false teaching or cults or what have you. They are after your money. So was the case with these false teachers. And so here Paul had been the opposite of the false apostles and had not asked them to support him while he preached the gospel there. And they figured out a way of using that against Paul. If, if he got money, then he, wanted, then he was hungry for money. If he didn't take any, then he, he didn't think the Corinthians, he was treating them in a in a way that did not honor them. He dishonored them, they said, by not uh, allowing them to participate financially. I was going to quote this uh, Dr. Martin here. Here's um, Here's a quote. To take money from the Corinthians would not impoverish them, but it would condone the activity of misguided people, the opponents and their followers, who see the taking of money for preaching the gospel as an authentic sign of an apostle. By refusing such procedures, Paul continues his honest dealings with the Corinthians. And then he also points this out. The only exception that Paul took with the Corinthians as compared to the other churches was that he did not receive financial support. But it must be apparent that he did so as not to appear like his opponents, 11, 18, and 19. It was permissible for apostles to accept money for the preaching of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9, 14. But the Corinthians apparently failed to realize that the person doing the preaching had the prerogative to accept or refuse aid, 1 Corinthians 9, 15. Paul chose to refuse because any acceptance might be misconstrued as a um, sign of apostleship in the sense that these false apostles claimed it was. So that's what uh, was going on. He, he mentions this issue often. So this had to have been a, a sore spot. He talked about it in 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, he laid down the principle. In fact, let's turn there. Turn to 1 Corinthians 9. Let's, all, let's read the principle there that still holds. 1 Corinthians 9, we'll start, I think, in verse 12. He says this, If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. So Paul was not accepting financial help from them for the sake of the gospel. Verse 13, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple... 
And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. Now, this is based on Levitical law. Are you aware of that, how that worked? They had a share, the Levites had a share of what went on as far as the, the things at the altar there. So he's using that by analogy to point out that those in the New Covenant who are serving the New Covenant can be cared for by the ones who are served. Verse 14, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And I use none of these things, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Interesting. Let's just mention that one. Why would Paul pronounce a woe on himself if he doesn't preach the gospel? Because it's that important. That's what he's called to do. That's the message of every new covenant minister. So I think it's quite interesting to me that Paul would say, woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel, and ministers today think that it's optional. And it's no more optional today than it was in Paul's day. And if you just heard some of the phone conversations I've had since probably 2004, you would be amazed and, and, and saddened, I, I would have to say. I, one of the most sad ones I ever heard was a guy who recorded himself pleading with his pastors and elders to preach the gospel. I think I told you that story. I heard, and, he, and he saved that for me. He didn't broadcast it, but he, but he put it on a secure server so I could hear it. And that was the most unbelievable thing. The, the, they were, first of all, they were having an outreach. And the outreach was they were going to have classic car show in the church parking lot. Okay, so they had all these hot rods and cars and everything. And then so people would come to the church to look at these cars. Well, so then the guy was saying, okay, can I, um, can I distribute gospel tracts at the outreach? No, you may not. Well, why not? Well, we saw your track. We don't like it. Well, what's wrong with my track? Can I get a different track that has the gospel in this worded differently and, and distribute that at your outreach? Or at the church. He was part of the church, at the church's outreach. No, you may not. Okay, can I talk to people at the outreach about Jesus Christ? No, you may not. I heard this. In fact, I think I captured it somewhere. Uh, anyhow, I heard, so this is what they're telling him. This is an evangelical church. No, you may not. Well, may I tell my testimony? What if I just tell them about what Jesus did for my life? No, you may not. Okay. And so then they're going round and round, and this guy and his wife are sitting there, and she's, she, his wife is weeping as they're preparing to throw this guy out of their church for, the, for preaching the gospel. And, and then, then he says, well, then, then they start confronting him, telling him he was an evildoer that he was causing distress in the church and he was causing disunity because of his assistance on gospel preaching. So then that conversation kind of got going. And then he finally said, well, but I care about this church and I, I care about the people that come here and I want them to know Jesus. I want them to hear about the gospel. Well, we don't, we don't understand it the way you do. We, we don't, that's not our, our plan. Our plan is... You know, and they were, they, it was the seeker-sensitive thing. They're going to come in here, and they're going to be happy, and they're going to like us. And somewhere down the road, then they'll find out about Jesus. Okay? So we don't like the way you do it, because you're telling people up front 
the gospel. We don't like that. So then they, he said, well, can I share my testimony in church, at the church service with other Christians? No, you may not. Well, then they got a little more, you know, the conversation goes on. Finally, the pastor and elder said, okay, we think you should not come to this church. Well, we're going to remove you from membership. And so he says, well, can non-members attend? I mean, he just wouldn't go away like they wanted him to. Can non-members attend? Uh, well, I, well, they do. He said, okay, I'll come as, if, if I come as a non-member, is it, can I talk to anybody about Jesus? No, you may not. And all he was asking to do was to share the gospel with people. And he's booted out of the church. I, I heard the conversation. Unbelievable. Okay, so Paul is saying, woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel. And we've got these people tell, t- training pastors on how not to preach the gospel. I guess they don't have any sense of woe anymore. All right, that was 916. For if I preach the gospel, I've done nothing to boast of. I'm under compulsion for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. If I do this voluntarily, I have a reward, but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. In other words, whether he feels like it or not, he is a steward. A steward is under somebody else's direction. All right. So whether he wants to preach the gospel or not, he has to, because he is accountable to Jesus, who's the head of the church. Yes, Troy. Alice and I had a similar thing uh, happen to us a couple of years ago. I don't know if this guy went to church over in Milwaukee, but... Uh, we went to her sister's church. They had an outreach, so we went with her on Saturday. They had a car show. They had a carnival at a festival. You know, we were passing tracks out and stuff, and I was even passing them out to some of the church members and elders and stuff, and there was no gospel being preached. It was supposed to be an outreach. We went to the service the next morning. Her sister's friend says, well, you better, it was a pretty emotional service. You better bring some tissues in with you. So we went in the service, and, and they had this guy, this strong man evangelist, breaking bricks and ripping up telephones and Bending up frying pans. Carrying telephone books in two? <laughs> yeah. Man, make... when I see that, I really want to become a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> and then they played, a, they played a video of this guy that took his quadriplegic son through triathlons, and there was no gospel message preached. Not one verse was preached. The only thing I heard him preach about the Bible was you got to get out of the boat and, like Peter and walk towards Jesus. And then they, they had an altar call, and about 200 people went forward to ask Jesus into their heart, and they never heard the gospel. They don't whatsoever. even know who Jesus is. So they're fully inoculated. They think they're believers. And they use, they use kind of a carnival uh, raffle ticket to get these out people to come to their church. They were going to have a raffle in the gym afterwards. Went to the bookstore. Other than a few Bibles, there was one MacArthur Truth War in Spanish, and everything else is pure heresy. Really? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, I don't know what happened about this stewardship of the gospel in our day, but do you think... Has anything really changed? Don't we still have a stewardship of the gospel? Absolutely we do. That didn't change. And we're accountable for preaching it. So whether voluntarily or not, I have a stewardship I have to preach. What then is my reward? Says Paul, verse 18. That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew. And now here's the, here's the proof text, by the way, for the secret church. Let's, let's just talk about this a little bit. To the Jews I became as Jews, so that I, I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under law, so that I might win those who are under the law. In other words, he, he removed needless offenses. 
Okay? So when he went to preach to the Jews, he didn't do anything that would be offensive to them, and likewise to the, to the Gentiles. So that's all that means. It doesn't mean that you change the message. Do you see anywhere Paul says he's changing his gospel message? No. Let's, let's read on. Verse 22, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. So the take this section and use it as a proof text for not preaching the gospel is a perversion. Because he talked about the absolute obligation of gospel preaching throughout the section. And And the only thing about removing offenses, I agree with removing needless offenses. Okay? And we've talked about that here before in this class. Remember when we talked in 2 Corinthians 6 about separation? That we separate from sin, but not from the people themselves. Okay, because we have to be interacting with the people in the world that we live in to preach the gospel to them. And so we don't make needless uh, hindrances to people. For example, some churches make certain clothing rules obligatory. Okay, and... By doing so, people come in who may not be like us, and they look around and they say, I, just, I guess I don't belong here. Uh, I didn't get the clothing memo. So we don't you know, you know, do this sort of thing. But on the other hand, the gospel itself, why is that important? Why does Paul say this? The gospel has its own offense. It doesn't need any added to it. <laughs> okay. The gospel of Jesus Christ of the cross offends people, but it's necessary. It's necessary. So we shouldn't add any other kind of offense to the gospel itself because it tells us that we're sinners, that we've broken God's law, that we're facing God's wrath, and that we need a Savior and that we need to come to Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's principle then was this. The person who is ministering the gospel is someone who ought to be taken care of by those who are hearing the gospel. But if there's intervening circumstances that make that either impractical or impossible, we're still obliged to preach the gospel. So that's the principle that we've operated on. Some years ago when we were a very small church and we could hardly pay our bills, several times I reassured the congregation that no matter what happens, the gospel will continue to be preached. So uh, money is not going to determine whether or not we preach the gospel. It may determine some things like you know, how the building is fixed up or what have you, but it's not going to change the gospel. So back to verse 13, 12, 13. Forgive me this wrong. So there's an irony here. Paul didn't actually believe he was doing anything wrong. Yeah, this was a problem, a sore spot, an issue with them that goes all the way back to... 1 Corinthians, but he here is being accused of wrongdoing because he didn't take their money. It could be, it's a difficult thing being a, a preacher of the gospel. There's always going to be trials. There's always going to be people angry with you. There's going to be people that accuse you of having bad motives when you know you really don't have them. Uh, this is just, it goes with the territory. And you have to be a little bit thick-skinned. If, if you're going to be a gospel preacher, because you're going to get accused. It's guaranteed. And they're, and they're going to 
think up some bad motive that you have because they don't have a legitimate argument. I just heard that one the other day from somebody. Uh, you know, the ad hominem argument. Oh, you're just, you're just a, a little puppy dog nipping at the heels of the big boys. You don't really have an issue. That's what somebody told me. In other words, if I don't have the money or clout as some of these other guys, then obviously I have bad motives. I just want to, you know, I'm like this, the little dog syndrome. You know what that is? They're the ones that will bite you. The big one knows he's okay. He'll just sit there. The little one will grab on and bite you. So they, so I'm the, so they called me the little dog biting on the big guy's heels. No, I don't care about that sort of stuff. It's, the question is the, the, the fact of the gospel itself and what, what its claims are. But that's what you get. Verse 14. Here, for this third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. He's pointing out a natural rule of life here. He's not wanting their money, but what he does want is their loyalty to him and the gospel that he preaches. I want you. I care for you, says Paul, but yet they listen to the false teachers. Patrick, you have the mic there. Could you look up 2 Corinthians 6.13 and Joe, 1 Corinthians 4.14 and Larry, 1 Thessalonians 2.19 and 20 and Gretchen, 1 Peter, 1 Peter 5, 2 through 4. Now I'm going to go back to Garland here. He says this. He has described his relationship to them as the father who cares for them, 1 Corinthians 4.14, and who begot them, 1 Corinthians 4.15. He brought them the gospel, 10.14, arranged their marriage to Christ, 2 Corinthians 11.2, exalted them at his own expense, 2 Corinthians 11.7, loved them faithfully as God can attest, 2 Corinthians 11.11, sacrificed himself for them, 12.15, poured himself out for them, devoted himself to their upbuilding, 2 Corinthians 12.19 and 13.10, and like any good parent, pointed out their faults and reprimanded them, 2 Corinthians 12.20. Paul therefore appeals to the widely held expectations regarding the relationship between parents and children. Parents and children. And so Paul had done everything that a good parent would do for children, and the result he gets for it is they hate him. Sort of like real life. No, no I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes uh, there's a few years there where it seems like that's what's going on. But uh, if, you, if you can get them to their 20s, they'll come back and decide you're pretty good. <laughs> then they'll realize it's, it's sort of true. Kids, you know, God can intervene, and especially if kids are saved at a young age, it makes a lot of different, big difference as they go through the teenage years. But if they're not saved during their teenage years, sometimes... They become so selfish, it seems, and everything's about me, and they don't have any clue about what it took to get them to that age. And I remember we went through a few things, and I, I said, you know what your mom did for you? Changed your dirty diapers, fed you, poured out her life for you? Show some respect for that. Okay, I, uh, whatever, I suppose. 
then retribution comes because they have their own kids. You know, oh, this isn't so easy. No, 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 it's a different story. Well, Paul is having the rebellious teenager issue here with the church, okay? And so he said, I, I, I really care about you, and I, and I care about your well-being, and I care about your spiritual well-being and your eternal well-being. And um, I've been here for your benefit. When it says here children are not responsible to save up, the word there is the thesaurizane, and where we get our word thesaurus, but what it meant in the Greek was to lay up treasure or to store up something that could be drawn upon later, hopefully with interest, to store up. And so uh, parents are expected to store up for the children because they realize that this is going to take some doing. Getting this child to adulthood is going to take some assets. It's going to take a lot of energy. And it's really a good idea, if possible, to start the process when you're 20. I'm just, no, I'm just kidding. It does, it, does, it does help when you're young, raising kids. I'm telling you that. Because we know now that we have grandkids. Uh, I wouldn't want to be doing that full time. Okay, let's look up, uh, what was the first one? 2 Corinthians 6.13. Okay. Now in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. So he, he does the children analogy there again. And then 1 Corinthians 4.14. I do not write to you these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. There again, he admonishes them as children. And then 1 Thessalonians 2.19 and 20. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not in you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Uh, so Paul has a joy in, in spiritual children the way a parent would have joy in literal children. And they are a great joy, an unbelievable amount of joy. Remember I read that quote from... In my sermon last, was it last week? I quoted Charles Hodge talking about these anchorite monks sitting in a cave while uh, the Christian is, has a grandbaby bouncing on his knee. <laughs> and he, was, he was railing against the Catholic policy of celibacy. Yes? 1 Corinthians 2 through 4. 5, 2 through 4. Okay. Okay. 2. Uh, these shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over uh, those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Instructions to elders. That's instructions to elders. And they're called, the chief, Jesus is the chief shepherd, so elders are under shepherds. Elders are, elders and pastors, by the way, are the same in the, in the New Testament. That's not, a, that's not a really a distinction in the New Testament. We tend to make a distinction 
uh, only just we understand what the truth of it is, but the terminology generally applies when somebody's preaching in the pulpit, they're called a pastor. And when they're an elder doing other sorts of caring for the flock, but it's really kind of just an artificial distinction. Um, it's not uh, necessary as far as the Bible is concerned. But Peter's point is that shepherds aren't there to be greedy for money. They're not there to have lordship over somebody else so that they can revel in the idea that they can tell other people what to do. They're there to serve. And the service that elders render, according to the New Testament, is to care for the Lord's flock. One of the most important principles that's necessary for anyone serving, elders or any, any of us actually, is the idea that the flock is the Lord's flock. Okay? Now, that doesn't seem so revolutionary, but it would be if people thought that way. If people thought that way, that description I gave of a guy getting thrown out of his church for preaching the gospel would never happen. Because that pastor would be conscious of the fact that this person obviously is a Christian or he wouldn't have such a zeal for preaching the gospel. This person obviously is the Lord's flock or he wouldn't care so much about lost souls. So therefore, how I treat him has to be influenced by my belief that I'm an under-shepherd. This is Jesus' sheep and he loves them and he lays his life down for them. And I've got to care for them. I've got to look after them. I've got to guard them from the wolves. I've got to feed them pure food. I have to make sure my own bad motives don't bring harm. And so, therefore, we have to be circumspect and allow the Holy Spirit to shine his light uh, because perhaps our motives are bad. We don't always know. Who knows the heart? God? <laughs> He's called the heart knower in the book of Acts. And the Lord himself says, I know the heart. So, so I just I was just got an email from somebody telling me I had bad motives because I corrected somebody's favorite teacher, and I and in fact she said you have bad motives and bad information. So I wrote back. I said, well, I don't know for sure about the motives, but I'm absolutely sure I've got the right information. I did not write about any theological topic without doing hours of research and carefully studying and reading the material. I have no joy. I would never want to misrepresent anybody. Okay? But about motives, the Lord knows the heart. I, I, believe, that, I believe that I write my article to help the flock sort out the difference between the truth and the error. But if you want to question my motives, I can't squawk about that. Go ahead. It's always possible there's something that I don't know that the Lord needs to to show me. So you, you just you can't know those things. But God can cleanse the heart, and God can shine the light on our own hearts, and He can cause providentially things to reveal to us if we have bad motives. He can He can put us into a circumstance where we have to serve in a situation where there's no benefit to us for doing so, and if we're still willing to, it's a sign that maybe the Lord did some good thing in our motives. Because there's a lot of things the Lord can do, but we can't just say, I have good motives. That's, that's not a convincing argument to anybody. But Paul had to do that. That's what's so sad about what happened to him here in Corinth, is he just continually had to defend his own motives. And I can tell you there's one thing you just don't like to have to do, because it's not a very easy Argument. Yes, I have good motives. Well, I don't know. 
I remember one time back in the 80s when we switched from, to, to becoming a Bible church. In the fairly early 80s, we, we were more of a experiential oriented in, in, our, in the old days. And we decided that rather than listening to all these latest, greatest new teachers coming through town, we were going to just teach the Bible to the flock. That was about 83. So we're going back a few years, okay? And I remember when we started that, and I was, had to work overtime to convince everybody that was a good idea, okay? And I remember just teaching people about the necessity of study. We need to get our Bibles open. We need to learn how to use the concordances and the tools. We need to start reading some good theology. And we started a men's meeting where we come on Saturday morning and, and just discuss issues in theology. We did that for years. And I remember when, uh, one time when I was lecturing about the need to study and the need to know the Bible, somebody said, well, it's easy for you. You get paid to do this. <laughs> and I had to think about that. And I said, well, I'll tell you one thing. I, I, you, you could be right that, that if I wasn't getting paid, I wouldn't want to study. I don't think that's true. You couldn't keep me away from it because I can't keep you away from it, whether you're getting paid for it or not. And anyhow, here's what I said. Well, I can feel good about this. Before I got paid for it, I did just as much studying. And before I got paid for it, I still taught the Bible. And I can also say this. There are a lot of pastors out there who are getting paid for it and are not doing it. And they say, oh, yeah, that's true. They, they don't put in any study because they just don't do it. Well, anyhow, the fact is, this Paul's example, if you read 1 and 2 Corinthians, and then Thessalonians, he bears his heart to them as well. Now, he was happy with them. They weren't giving him trouble like the Corinthians. But if you see Paul's heart, you get a glimpse of what a minister of Jesus Christ is supposed to look like. We're not apostles like Paul. He was uniquely an apostle, him and the others. But, but we're still servants and are under shepherds, as Peter said, under Jesus. And it gives you a glimpse about what it's supposed to look like. And what it looks like is someone is committed to the gospel no matter what, paid or not paid, people happy with him or not happy with him, things going good or things going bad, has to be the gospel is everything. And that and the well-being of the flock has to be a primary concern. And the stories that I hear from a lot of wonderful, beloved saints who love Jesus Christ is that that's so rare in these days. Just heard from somebody, uh, somebody asked me to call, lives out on the, other, on the West Coast somewhere, called and I was talking, they went on speakerphone, him and his wife, and they were telling just a sad story. They're in a church that, that's into spiritual warfare as if that's the, that's the whole thing. Okay, so they're, they're rebuking demons, talking to Satans, trying to discover what curses. And, uh, and, the, this, and, and this couple were in this group that was just doing this. And somehow, by God's grace, they got the idea that there, there was something wasn't right about it. They, they had no idea what. But they just said, this doesn't seem right to us. And so they went on the Internet, typed in spiritual warfare, and up comes CIC articles. And so they read this, that, that I'd been in that and got out of it. And then they read the one about, there's the one I wrote lately about pagan worldview, that every time you have a spiritual warfare worldview, you end up with a class of shamans, whether it's Christian shamans or 
pagan shamans or tribal shamans, you always have shamans. Why do you always get shamans? Because somebody has to mediate between the spirits and the people. And, and the people can't see these spirits, but they know they're out there. So the shaman is, is somebody with better expertise at, at going into that realm. And so they got the idea, oh, this is wrong. So they read my articles, and then they knew it was wrong, and they knew why it was wrong. And so then they got excited about it and went to tell some of their friends, and their friends thought they were nuts. And so then they called, and, and they, they said, well, we're, we're heartbroken because we really love these people. These people are our friends, these people we've been fellowshipping with. And, and we want to help them. How can we convince them? And I said, it's not easy. God has to open eyes. Once you're deluded by, by false doctrine, it takes an act of God to open your eyes. But he uses means, and the means can be a Christian friend who asks them to consider the evidence and to look at what the Scripture says. And so I said, well, the bad news is this. The good news is God opened your eyes. He loves you. He cares for you. And you'll never go back to that because now you know the truth. And, and the Lord did it for both of you. So you've got an intact family. Sometimes it's just the husband or just the wife. Then you've got a problem. Okay? And they, and they, but the bad news is they'll probably throw you out of your church. I've talked to enough people enough times. They said, well, should we go back in there and try to tell them the truth? I said, that would be a good thing to do, but don't expect much other than to be thrown out and told that you need to go somewhere else. But do it. I would do it. I would do it because it, uh, you never know. Later they may, a light may come on for somebody else. Okay? So it's a, it's a tragic thing what's going on in our world today. And, but thank God uh, the Internet is one way we can help people outside of our own circles. Uh, here's a statement that's unbelievable. Yeah, verse 15. This, this statement... Uh, the Lord used it one time when I was so tired of the ministry. I was just weary and tired. This was, I don't know, 20 years ago. I was frustrated, d- disgusted. Uh, I felt like I was trying to help people, and all I did was make my life miserable as, as a reward. And I was reading in my Bible, and here comes this verse. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. And I was reading the King James at the time. Even though the more I love you, the less I'm loved. And I read that and I thought, what am I complaining about? <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty high standard. To love and be expended and to be wore out for the sake of the church and that the result is they don't love you. I said, I can't complain. If that's what God requires of ministers, then I can't complain. I don't have anything to complain about. So it was a tough verse, and when I first saw it, I said, Lord, that's too hard. How can anybody do this? But Paul did. Spend. Now, he uses the language of money, a monetary metaphor. Um, the word spend and be expended. Expended is the same word in the Greek, only with an ek prefix, which means out of. So expended or having the money go out of him. Uh, only he's not talking about literal money. And he says, and for your souls, that's a good translation, huper ton sukon, for your souls. It's a genitive, and it means here on behalf of your souls. So Paul is expending and being expended on behalf of the souls of the Corinthian church. Now, the New American Standard translates it as uh, a rhetorical question. If I love you the more, am I to be loved the less? And the answer would be, well, obviously not, but that's probably what's actually happening. 
It ought not to be that way, but sadly, that's the way it actually is. He loves them the more, and they love him the less. Paul goes through pain to bring the gospel to them. We read about his litany of suffering in chapter 11, but the real pain is the wrong response to him. The pain of betrayal by loved ones is greater than the physical pain of being beaten. It's true. Absolutely. Emotional pain of betrayal is is worse than physical pain. Why? Well, for one thing, most kinds of physical pain eventually go away. Some people I know have chronic pain. But pain will go away. But a busted relationship from, from a close loved one, it just goes on and on and on and on. And you don't have any remedy. You can't take an aspirin for it. It just doesn't go away. And so the pain for Paul, and he's not being melodramatic when he says it, that it's worse. This is worse. Uh, the, the sorrow in his soul because of the people that he led to Christ being taken captive by false teachers. Paul talked about his fatherly role in, in 11. Well, let's go back to that. It's sort of programmatic for our whole section here. Back to chapter 11, 1. Read that again just to set the stage. I know we spent quite a bit of time on this earlier. But here's what he says. I wish that you would bear with me a little in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. Now, his foolishness, of course, is the defense of his own self. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Now, he's using a marriage analogy. And I was talking about this last week when I was preaching on the Seventh Commandment, that a betrothed person was, um, if a betrothed person um, was immoral with someone else, that was considered adultery just as much as if there had been a marriage. Remember me saying that? And so what Paul is doing here, he's making an analogy from the Old Testament prophets who accused Israel of spiritual adultery. And so Paul is saying this, that when I brought you the gospel, you were betrothed to the Lord Jesus Christ. The actual marriage doesn't happen until the eschaton, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb. So you're betrothed to Christ. The marriage is future. I'm your father in this by analogy, okay? By analogy. And I'm responsible. This was the case in Jewish custom. The father was the one who guaranteed that the daughter being presented to the bridegroom was a virgin. That was his responsibility to guard that, the purity of his daughter. Okay? So Paul says, by analogy, it's my responsibility as your father to guard your purity so that when you're presented to Christ, you haven't committed spiritual adultery. Now that he takes this very seriously and somewhat literally, we'll see as we read on. So that was verse 2. Verse 3. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. We spent quite a bit of time on that. He goes back to the seduction of Eve 
by the serpent. It was a spiritual seduction. As Eve was told, ye can be like God. You don't have to be a dependent human being who obeys the word of the Lord. You can be like God. Here's what it says, verse 4. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you have received a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear with this beautifully. There is the sullying of the Lord's bride-to-be. And the seriousness of it cannot be overstated. And Satan is still up to the same trick as he was in the garden. And he's still targeting the Lord's people. And he's still trying to cause the Lord's bride to commit spiritual adultery. And and if you remember, I quoted Schaefer in my sermon Sunday. I quoted Francis Schaefer. I had not read that book. I read a lot of Schaefer, but this was one of his last books, The Church Before the Watching World. He has a whole chapter where he's accusing the church of spiritual adultery. And the grounds of Schaefer's accusation was the fact that the liberal church, and that was his debate was with the liberals in that era, that the liberal church had a different Jesus and a different gospel and therefore a different spirit, and they were committing spiritual harlotry. Because the Jesus, how do you know you have the right Jesus? Schaefer, Francis Schaefer, God bless him in his day, says because the Jesus defined by the scriptures is the only true Jesus. He said the Jesus of the liberal church is not the Jesus defined by the scriptures. So therefore they're committing spiritual adultery. And he says that we only know we have what's right and true from the scriptures. And when they launch an attack against the scriptures, they're launching an attack against the purity of the church. And how is the, are the scriptures attacked? Well, in Schaefer's day, it was through what he called the new theology. And there were two ways that that was expressed in the 20th century. One way was through the liberals who says the Bible contains the word of God rather than the Bible is the word of God. And therefore, having determined that not all of the Bible was the word of God, then the liberal theologian could decide, remember the Jesus seminar, did Jesus say this or did he say that? Okay, is this really authentic? Is this, where did it come from? All this, of course, all of the stuff having to do with miracles or the supernatural has to go out because that wasn't part of their worldview. Okay, so Schaefer calls that spiritual adultery, a failure to understand what God said. The other tenant in the 20th century, besides liberalism, was neo-orthodoxy. And it was just as bad. Neo-orthodoxy says the Bible becomes the word of God. Now, that's precisely uh, what's going on today in postmodern theology. It's, I hope some of you are getting, working your way through my book, but I have a whole chapter on that issue. Okay, The emergent church teaches that the readers determine the meaning of the Bible. Uh, in postmodern theology, Stanley Grins has all kinds of highfalutin stuff in his book that, uh, that after you read all this stuff, some people have told me, I'm reading your book, but this is so hard. 
I said, well, what's hard, what I'm seeing or what I'm quoting? No, what you're quoting. <laughs> I said, right, because they're throwing out all of this verbiage to, 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 snow, uh, uh, to put a smoke screen. And, and they, they kind of just sit back and think nobody's going to understand this. Throw it out there, throw it out there. And so I do the hard work of understanding it because they are saying things. And so then I explain it to you. So don't get discouraged. You need to know this because this is affecting uh, if not you, your friends, your loved ones, your, your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, your brothers, your sisters. And it's infiltrated nearly every Bible college and Christian place of higher education in the whole country. And I've gotten that from eyewitness people. It's called undefining. Thank you, Troy. <laughs> but anyhow, the point, here's the point. Schaefer called a spiritual adultery when somebody says the Bible becomes the Word of God. Why? Because now the Holy Spirit-inspired author doesn't determine the meaning. So what Paul doesn't determine the meaning of what Paul means, the guy reading the Bible determines what Paul means. That's, so then you have as many Bibles as you have readers. And so to get away from that problem, the uh, emergent approach is this. Well, the problem with you, they say, somebody like me, is that you're a rationalist and an individualist. So you think you have the audacity to, to believe, like Martin Luther did, that I could read the Bible, know what it says, believe what it says, be bound by what it says, and then, like Luther, here I stand. Uh, McLaren says that's the first utterance of the modern world. And, and he does everything he can to undermine the idea that you, as a person, can study the Bible and know what it says and be bound to that, by that meaning. So then how do you get rid of the problem of the individual reading the Bible? Well, the group, the Holy Spirit is working through the group, leading the group into a socially constructed reality, which is more like the one that God has in mind. That's what, that's what they say. And isn't it true that one group can have a different reality? Yeah, and it doesn't matter if every group has a different reality. The reality within your reading group is the only one that matters to you. Okay, Here's the thing. It sounds strange. It's foreign to our thinking. But we better take it seriously because it's going to destroy the church. This movement is huge. And where it's most prevalent is on campuses. And I don't know if you heard, uh, if, you did, if you missed the interview with Jen, and they botched it, by the way. It was pre-recorded. So uh, I apologize on behalf of KKMS. Jan's uh, guy, Brian, was down yesterday, and he's got it right now. So from today, when it's rebroadcast, Jan's show will have the whole thing. And we talk about this. Okay? This may not be something we want to know about, but we better know about it if we care about our families. Because this is, I said this on the show. Uh, I got a call from Bruce Davidson, or an email from Bruce Davidson. He's a professor, a Christian professor in Japan. His daughter, Sarah, went to our church when we were in the old building when she went to MCAD, and she's now in Japan. He's a professor. He's been published in theological journals. He came to America to present a lecture on Jonathan Edwards based on an article he had published in a journal, and the conference was, was theologians and college professors from all over the United States. And, and it's one of these things where 10 or 15 people present papers and then other people critique it, sort of a think tank roundtable. It's all professors from Christian colleges. 
And he listened to lecture after lecture after lecture after lecture. And he said, everyone besides his, and another one sort of, but everyone besides his came from postmodern perspective. They were praising Stanley Grins, the guy that I talk about in my book, who wrote this postmodern theology, who says the reader determines the meaning of the Bible. They were praising him at this conference for saving evangelicalism from irrelevance. Because if we're going to stand on what the Bible says and what the Bible means, we're irrelevant, they say. The only way to be relevant is to become postmodern. And once you become postmodern, you have no gospel to preach. So don't get discouraged in reading the book. I did not set out to see how complicated a book I could write. I set out to explain this stuff in its own terms for what it really is. And the reason you have trouble is because you think rationally. But don't stop thinking rationally. Okay, yes. The, I've, I have your book, and um, I think it's one of the better explanations of what the emergent church is on everything we've ever heard, better explanation. And then also, I, I got a tip or a recommendation from, from uh, Kuffel, uh, Dick Kuffel, and he said, read the abstracts first. Go all through all the abstracts. And then, then you can read to whatever is... is they start in, back in the beginning. start back in the beginning, and yeah. that's really a yeah. great, great tip to if, do that. If you read through all the, abs- the abstracts, are like three-paragraph explanations of the thesis and the contents of the chapter and what I'm going to argue. Re- if you read all of those, you'll get the idea of where the book's going and what it's all about, and then you can go back and read the actual chapters where I quote these guys. Yes, I'd recommend everybody here to get the book and read it, and if you're in any blogs or anything, just get the word out about the book. Start creating some excitement about it. it. It really is the, the the best written book on this subject, the most comprehensive that I have seen. And I think it's probably going to be winding up to be a standard in seminaries and colleges, but we need to get the word out there. Well, I'm hoping that the people that from Emergent will get the blogging to try to refute me. That would be a very, that would be a great process because, it, yeah, let them try to refute this because the arguments in there, I hope, are, kind of demystifying this whole thing. So, thank you. Um, uh, The answer, by the way, to what we were just talking about, the way to avoid being sullied is to stick with the gospel and the Bible and believe what God said, and you'll be presented to the Lord as a pure bride without spot or wrinkle on the day of the marriage. God bless you.